Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology with me, Tiasha Zaitz. There were an estimated 18.1 million cancer cases around the world in 2020, according to the World Cancer Research Fund International. Looking at the data prepared by the Comparator Report on Cancer in Europe, the absolute number of people diagnosed with cancer in 2020 rose around 50% in Europe over the past 20 years. However, the number of deaths only increased by 20%. These numbers show that we're making great strides in survival and treatments, early screening and diagnostics, but because of the aging population, cancer care and prevention are a rising global public health concern. Today's episode is the first in the series of discussions in which we will talk about cancer, access to treatments, the role of genomics in oncology, the role of data and IT for improved care and the work of clinicians, and the role of AI in the search of new and best personalized treatments. We will also talk about cancer survivorship, what happens to patients after they're cancer-free, but unfortunately far from back to life they had before the diagnosis. Today, you'll hear from David J. Stewart, Professor of Medicine in the Division of Medical Oncology at the University of Ottawa and the Ottawa Hospital. David recently wrote a book titled A Short Primer on Why Cancer Still Sucks, and you can find the link to the book in the show notes. David and I talked about the comparison of financial toxicity of cancer for patients in Canada and the U.S., the challenges with drug development and access in these two countries. David also talked about his experience with healthcare digitalization and IT systems and improvements he hopes to see in cancer care. Before we dive into today's discussion, do check out our newsletter. It only comes out once a month. The September issue is focused on the insights about healthcare digitalization in Africa and the two editions before that on digital health in Taiwan and the APAC region. If you haven't yet, subscribe to the show to receive new episodes in your podcast player automatically. As mentioned, in the upcoming episodes, we'll talk a lot about the innovation in oncology. David, welcome to the discussion about the book that you recently uh, wrote, which is Cancer Still Sucks. Why did you write this book and why the title? Okay, so the reason I wrote the book was that for years I've been telling my wife that I had to write it because of the questions my patients have. And the, what patients have often told me is that, is that there's nothing worse than uncertainty. If they get bad news, then they can figure out what to do about it. But if they don't know what's going on, then it's very difficult for them to figure out what to do with their lives or how to approach things. And so they've often told me that just knowing things, even if it's bad, it helps a lot because then they know what they've got to do. 
And, uh, and they also, that the more they know, the more insight that they've got, the better, the easier it is for them to, to deal with things and to make, make decisions. That was one reason to do it. Also for trainees, there's a lot of information in it that, that trainees and uh, healthcare professionals who are not oncologists can also gain from it. But the other thing also is just the, the systems issues. I've been publishing for a number of years on the problems with the access to, to, to new drugs and other I think it's with systems issues and have not been successful in uh, solving those problems or getting people to pay too much attention. Things like the fact that it takes an average of 12 years to bring a new drug from discovery to market. And during that 12 years, tens of thousands of life years can be lost if it's an effective job. And also the same things that, that uh, delay development of new drugs also markedly increase the cost of those drugs because they markedly drive up research costs and those research costs have to be recouped. Once a drug is marketed, and so they play a direct role in making net drugs cost far too much. And also, there are things with both the American and Canadian healthcare system. And as I say in Chapter 14, I love them both and I hate them both. They both have some strong points, but they also have, both have major failings. And, and just about some of the things that both of them need to address to make them We're going to talk about the financial toxicity and the challenges with the price of cancer treatments a little bit later, but just before that, if we try to outline where cancer is at the moment, despite the fact that many cancers have turned into chronic diseases and we've made tremendous progress in the research and development of new therapies, Cancer still is a very scary diagnosis and the statistics about how many people have or will have cancer are not very comforting. Uh, the current projections are that uh, close to 40% of all males and females in the U.S. and uh, almost 50% of males and 45% of all females in Canada will develop cancer at some point in their life. So a really large proportion of the population partially because the population in general is aging and the risk for developing cancer increases with age. But um, just staying with these statistics uh, at the moment, you've been in the field of cancer care for a long time. What scares you most around cancer and cancer care? The thing that scares me most is that, uh, that people will decide that things are so expensive that they can't afford to pay for them anymore. And if that happens, that progress halts because the only thing that will drive investment in new drugs is if a company can't sell a drug, then they're not going to invest in it. And, uh, and the progress right now is very rapid because there's a large investment. And but, but also with that large investment, the prices of drugs are very high. So what I point out in the book is if we want to maintain the profits that are essential for investment, that are essential for progress, we have to markedly bring down the cost of progress the cost of new drug development, because uh, because that's the only way we can get the prices to come down is if we make it a lot cheaper to develop these new drugs. And there's a huge number of things right now that are done that make it much more expensive than what it should be that are not needed. So that regulation is absolutely essential. Without regulation, things would be very bad. But the uh, what I argue is that it needs to be like the Audubon in Germany, which they've had an unlimited speed limit, and, but at one of the lowest tra traffic fatality rates in Europe, because they've got smart regulation. We need much smarter regulation driving clinical research because that's what we need to bring down the cost of developing new drugs, which is essential to 
to maintain progress, but it also bring down parts of Trump to the same time. How financially toxic is cancer therapy for patients in the U.S. and Canada? How would you compare? So the, the United States has by far the highest drug costs in the world. And that's because of the 2003, I think, Medicare Improvement Act that said that Medicare was not permitted to negotiate with drug companies about the price of drugs. And uh, so that was one part of it that made uh, drugs very expensive in the United States. And uh, so that, so if uh, people have Medicare, the all or most of the costs will be covered. If they've got good insurance, all or most will be covered. But if there's large co-pays, then with very expensive drugs, even if 80% is covered, that's still very expensive. And, and also if a patient does not have insurance, then it's very difficult to, uh, to pay for the medications. So that, so that healthcare costs are responsible for a very large number of personal bankruptcies in the United States because of the just cost of the drugs and other things. In Canada, the way it works is the government, well, in fact, it varies from one province to another. But for example, in Ontario, where I'm based, uh, the government will pay for any intravenous chemotherapy for any, anybody with cancer. For oral therapies, it's interesting that they'll pay for them for people over the age of 65, but not for people under the age of 65. And so some of the new oral therapies are expensive. And so that could be a problem. But there are ways of getting around that, that, that people can apply for what's called a trillion program, which is uh, coverage for the Johnson if they're under age 65. And, uh, and usually they'll get our full coverage. And also some people do have insurance, very good uh, insurance as well that will cover 80% of the cost of drug. And uh, not infrequently, the insurance will cover 80%. The drug company will forgive the other 20% and uh, cover it. So that helps. But the big problem that we've got in Canada is that is that really before public funding, it can be a year and a half on average after Health Canada proves it wrong. And companies do not apply to Canada until an average of eight to 10 months after applying to the United States or Europe, simply because Canada is a much smaller market. The United States has 330 million people. The EMA in Europe negotiates on behalf of about 500 million people. Canada has a population of about 10 to 35 million people. And, and so a relatively small population. And so it makes sense for companies to apply to bigger areas first. But then, and Health Canada does a very good job of reviewing the drugs and getting approved. So not quite as fast as after, as the FDA reading them, but almost. But then the problem is that the negotiations with the public funding programs, problems which takes much too long. So that, so that on average, the, the, until the public programs in Canada begin to fund the, fund the drugs is as long after the median for the organization for economic cooperation development. And again, that's a huge problem. Large numbers of, of people can die while waiting for access to these vaccinated drugs. Well, the good news is that, that some Canadians do have private drug insurance that will cover them. And so they're the easiest patients for me to treat because they've got access. And actually, one of the one of the things that's interesting about the PA system is many government employees have private insurance, and so that they've got that this private insurance. But they're negotiating on behalf of the patients for to get public funding. Well, they themselves can get it, but it may be maybe years after they get access that the people on blue pay to have the negotiation get get access. So people in Canada don't usually go bankrupt because of healthcare costs. But they may not be able to to access the therapies in a timely fashion. Mm -hmm. So does that mean that in the U.S. you would get medications and a surprise bill coming after it? Mm -hmm. But in Canada, they will they would first check if you actually can get the drug before giving it to you. I, so that so people can pay out of the pocket, but but usually these new medications are so incredibly expensive. 
that almost nobody can afford to pay out of pocket. So that if the if for some example somebody has private insurance, then then there'll be a negotiated upfront fairly rapidly whether the copay is covered or not. And so if, if I've got two different, uh, if I got a, a patient who's a federal government employee, and both they and their spouse have have insurance covered by the federal government, then both the upfront cost and the copay will be covered by that insurance. But if got got a patient with no insurance. Then, then that's just not just not feasible. So we try to get them onto and onto clinical trials. Some companies do have compassionate access programs that will make the drug available free of charge for a period of time. But but this is a huge problem in Canada. So different problems in different places. In the United States, it's just the sheer cost of all the medical costs, prices that people are paying, and what that does to people in Canada. It's it's a problem with them. I was time you definitely made both systems sound unattractive in some aspect, whereas usually the, I guess, the perception sometimes is that Canada, because it has a universal health system, is a dream come true for anyone that moves from the U.S. And I was wondering about the medication coverage because under the Canada's Health Act, prescription drugs in the hospitals are covered by, with no cost to the patient. But as soon as you go outside the hospital, it's up to the provincial governments to decide what kind of coverage can you get. And then there's patients that don't have coverage at all or they have it through the employment and can potentially lose it. Yeah, and also many hospitals Hospitals are very reluctant to pay for those non-new drugs. So if I've got a patient in hospital that I want to pembrolizumab or nivolumab to, I have to negotiate with the hospital to, and there's a committee that has to meet to, to actually get them to agree to to give that therapy. But I do everything I can to discharge the patient, so then then I might be able to pay for it. So in fact, actually, so an intravenous chemotherapy drug or immunotherapy drug that I can readily give to patients as an outpatient because the provincial government will pay for it. They do not cover the cost of uh, those drugs through the same mechanism for the uh, for inpatients. Then the hospital has to find it in their in global budget. So that, so you're right. So no, no system, not neither system is perfect. As a point note in uh, in the in chapter 14 of the book, Canadians only get what they pay for, and Americans pay far too much for what they get. And uh, the American system fails the young, uh, the underinsured, the uh, minorities, and the poor. The Canadian system fails older people who cannot get rapid access to the things that they need. So neither system is for both systems to have, have very strong points. I enjoyed thoroughly my the 12 years or more that I practiced down at MD Harrison Hoffman Houston. I enjoy very much practicing here in Ottawa. But I, I have major frustrations in both places. Uh, the things that don't work quite right, but, but we just keep on working to, to try to deal with, with those things. So for American politicians who say that they should adopt the Canadian healthcare system, I can tell them unequivocally no. For Canadians that say that they should adopt the American healthcare system, I can say unequivocally no. We need something different with either of them that, that solves some of the problems that they both face and that does things. You worked over 10 years at MD Anderson in Texas, a very reputable oncology institutions, and now you've got over 10 years of experience of working uh, in Canada. If we look at the workflows and the work that you do as an oncologist, how would you compare the decision-making process and how it's technically managed through the IT? We're talking about 20 years some things have changed. So tell me a little bit more about that, your experiences with IT systems and how much paper do you still use? 
But in fact, actually, I started my college training back in 1976. And, uh, and then it was uh, until 1980, it was at MD Arison. Then from 1980 till 2003, back here in Ottawa, then back down there from 2003 till 2011, and back up here since uh, 2011. And IT has changed markedly. Back in 1976, when I started my, my training down at MD Arison, there'd be a clerk sitting there at a desk with a computer, and above her head was a science saying, Errors, humans really mess things up. We need a computer. So, the, so computers have made things much easier. And uh, in the past, I would get my mail would come in at two inches of mail a day. Now it's almost none. But instead, everything is on the computer. And so that we've got the Epic system here in Ottawa, and it's been we've had it for about about three years now. And what I told the administrators was that with every week that went past, I was swearing at it less just because I quick getting to learn it better. So no question that it works better than the system we had before. And the, and the electronic systems work better than the old paper systems. So now there's very little that I need to do with paper in healthcare. And, and the electronic systems really do work much better, but, but they could still, but they're not intuitive. Actually, when, when they brought in Epic, I wrote a, an op-ed in the local newspaper called Epic, a drive in the Irish countryside, because it was like a, back in the 1990s, uh, trying to drive through Ireland, no GPS. And, and not being able to figure out their way around because there was no correlation between the road signs, the maps, and what the roads actually did. Because the, uh, the road sign would be very small just beyond the intersection and it would point to the, the, it would identify the next small village down the road, but, but that village would be too small to get the map. And the big city just beyond that small village would not be on the road sign. So trying to figure out where you're going was very, very difficult until you knew your. Same with uh, Epic, which is a great system in many ways, but it's uh, very low intuitive about it and keep on running into things that uh, you don't wish you knew how to uh, navigate. But again, better than the old days. Mm-hmm. What would be your dream come true in terms of healthcare IT and technology that's helping manage cancer? If we just extend this thought also maybe to, to other technologies, next generation sequencing advances in genomics had made a tremendous impact on oncology. Yeah, so that if I had a perfect, perfect IT system or healthcare technology system, I would just be able to type in a short question that would give me like a Google or give me all the answers of how to, how to get it. And again, when the trainers were here training some and how they, they, to, to use Epic, they said the great thing about Epic is there's, there's 10 different ways to do anything you want to do. And that's great, except you can't figure out how to do any one of them unless, unless, and there's nothing intuitive about it. And so you have to know this. And uh, whereas if I want to figure out something uh, about where to find a, a restaurant, I go into Google and I can. I say, find the closest restaurants and can tell me. And so that's what the epic of the future has to do, is I need to be able to uh, just type in uh, what I want and have it show me exactly what I need to do with all the nuances and not get buried in the nuances that, that uh, it buries me in right now. So that's with as far as the medical record system. As far as, as, far as the next generation sequencing, our big problem is the two problems, that, that right now something will have been submitted for the next generation sequencing, but I cannot tell where in the queue everything is. But I've been told that within a few months we'll have a system. And we'll say that they've received the tissue, they've it's uh, here in the processing that uh, they expect to uh, uh, go through by uh, such and such a date and the report to be generated on such and such a date. That will be hugely helpful because then I can tell exactly uh, when I need to, to schedule patients at the point and not keep on guessing 
not keep on calling up the, the head of the butler lab to figure out if he could tell me when the engine can be done or not. The other thing that's very important is that they've got reflex testing in many places have that. The, the pathologist and the lab now know that I've got an accretion of adenocarcinoma of the lung, but it's very important that I have the electric testing so that they do it reflexly and they just automatically put it in there. And so that, again, comparing the American community and healthcare systems, it took us a while to be able to get the electric testing. But now it's probably one that that's available to anybody. So some hospitals have to send it out, but, but we were fortunate to be able to get it here to the other large hospitals and do it locally. Whereas in the United States, there are still a, a number of, of people that do not have any access to electric testing because it's so dependent on the individual institution that looks at things. So again, pros and cons in different places. But, but if I just know for sure where testing is, then that helps. That helps greatly. The fact that the flex is great. Now they just have to speed everything up because there's not enough people here. So it may take the pathologist a few days before they submit the sample to, to the molecular lab. And, and there's you know, calls and crews working everywhere. Not enough people working in healthcare overall. So if anybody goes on sick, then things may get delayed. It may not move quite fast enough. And and it's important that everything be cast and move very rapid. And again, in, in a well-centered part of the system in the U.S., they tend to move just a bit faster than in Canada. And that's the reason that, that in Canada we do pretty well. But in, if you look over long Canada, that the probability of surviving cancer, overall 63% of all people who survive cancer survive. In the United States, it's 67%. That's not a big difference, but it would translate into about 9,000 excess deaths in Canada compared to the United States just because it was not fast enough access. But if you look at the, the nuances, the poorest 20% of the population do better in Canada than the United States. The top 80% from the point of view of the income do better in the United States just because uh, things tend to move a bit faster because of the of the other differences in healthcare funding. What's that one place in, in the United States that really needs to clean up? is the whole insurance and uh, the reason that the administrative costs are so much higher in the United States and Canada is because of the impact of insurance companies. It's one of the two areas where, where government is much more efficient than private sector. It is because of the fact that the whole approach to payments with insurance is so incredibly expensive. If I go back to the healthcare technologies and the IT infrastructure, you mentioned that you got used to the IT system that is installed in the hospital, but given the progress and all the ideas around the data and how to improve the physician's work with either voice tech, with AI, natural language processing, do you see that any of those technologies are already used or have been tested in any of the institutions that you work in? And also, I think I mentioned earlier that I'm a little bit curious to hear how much paper is still used. Is everything paperless? Do you still use anything for paper, especially when it comes to cancer therapies, which are complex for prescribing and yeah, difficult to combine with other medications? No, use almost no paper now. Very few things that we would use paper. Actually, I mentioned about insurance. If a patient has private insurance and they want to get disability insurance, they have to fill out papers for that. But and for home care, for home care, I have to fill out a paper for that. But ninety and nine percent of my work is now done online. It makes it much, much more efficient. As long as as is obvious what I have to do. If I have, if I can't figure out which button I have to push. That is a big problem. 
as long as I can figure out what's going on, I'm going to push heads, 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 the much better. And as far as the, how we dictate or not, it's all drag. It's all a voice. I actually started using Dragon back in, in 2004 when I was at MDRs. I was trying to figure out how to set up for a net rate of data we then automatically generate the note. And I figured that would do that if I had voice recognition software for the variable part. It would not be part of the data because that would be much better. So that, so I started using voice recognition multiple most other people did. And then up in, here in Canada, when the auto level started epic, it was automatic that, that we all went to drag. And, and as long as you're, you forgive your colleagues if there's something a little crazy that shows up a note because drag is putting the wrong thing, then, then everything is good. But the, the big thing for AI is clinical research. The most, the most expensive part of clinical research is the documentation. And that's because it's a whole bunch of people that are working in paper. That, so actually for you, if you care, it's all computerized. If I put a patient in front of a file, then suddenly I'll do a whole bunch of stuff on paper. And we have to have a whole bunch of data managers and research nurses that are doing a whole bunch of stuff on paper. This is very, very cost ineffective. So that, so we need a system that, that the patient can then can just enter the symptoms or whatever and that automatically goes into the system and that, that everything can become streamlined. So that nobody has to do anything anymore um, that, that involves, involves people. So that, um, because uh, the, the cost of uh, clinical research is rising much faster than inflation. And a lot of that has been driven by the cost of documentation and, and dealing with, with different systems like that. So that's where AI would be, uh, would be actually where if you had something like Watson to be able to fall out of a note and then put it into, into a database for clinical research, that would be huge. Still a lot of work to do there. However, a lot of ideas are on the market. Is there anything in terms of the tech development, in terms of the data management and just scientific progress that you look hopeful to? So what are some of the advancements that you're perhaps following and looking at with most interest? The short answer is I don't know enough about it to, the account, to actually be able to comment. But, but as far as the global healthcare processes, the greater extent to which all the systems are tied together. So, for example, the province of Alberta and Canada decided that they were going to bring in EPIC for the entire province. And I thought that, that was fantastic that they did it. Uh, and uh, here in, in Ontario, there are different hospitals have different systems, so we can't talk to each other uh, adequately. And so the more of the systems uh, are linked, the better. Uh, or if Epic could talk to other healthcare systems uh, or bring them in, uh, that would be a great extent to which I could access films, and scans from from anywhere, uh, any other system would be uh, would be absolutely great. But so these are issues. The so that the other uh, actually other health technology things that will are becoming more and more important. Again, artificial intelligence to to interpret scans and x-rays. That's becoming very large. Artificial intelligence to interpret pathology as wise. That's becoming better and better. In the series of discussions about oncology and technology, the series is going to end with a discussion about cancer survivorship. So what actually happens to patients that survive cancer they are cancer-free for over five years, and so the likelihood that the cancer would repeat is, is very small. And the fact is that they still might not have the same quality of life than they used to, and that's because of either late consequences of treatments or cancer itself, 
end because of challenges in society such as financial independence that's potentially not attainable for them anymore. To which extent do you uh, follow those consequences and hear about them from your patients? Uh, they're very real. And in fact, for childhood malignancies, uh, they're, they're front and center because for years they've been looking at what happens to children with cancers. And there's no question that they've got social disadvantages in many cases for the rest of their life. And also their life expectancy is shortened. But also we, we know that all the treatments that we're, that not all, but many of the treatments we now, now use for advanced cancers can damage normal cells and they could lead to premature aging. And so it could lead to, to reduction in life expectancy. So the better we are at selecting the right treatment for the right patient and reducing the toxicity, the better. And so, so example, the treatments may induce what's called senescence. And so there's a now a new field called chemotherapy that is trying to eradicate senescent cells. And so if you get rid of the inflammation caused by those senescent cells, then that might help. And also for adjunct treatment, giving chemotherapy after surgery to reduce the risk of the cancer occurring. By five or 10 years from now, we will no longer be giving that therapy. Instead, we'll be doing a blood test to see whether they have still any circulating tumor cells after surgery. And if there are, the patient will need therapy for minimal residual disease. But, but for all the patients that cannot find any residual uh, circulating tumor cells, those patients are probably cured. And you do not need to, to give them any treatment. So I think that's what's going to be coming within five to 10 years, so that so that hopefully we'll keep on making advances on all fronts to uh, not just to decrease the, the burden of cancer, but also the burden of cancer therapies, and also to figure out ways to make it less expensive by making proper research to, to buy some medications are less expensive, and then uh, that will also hopefully help with some of the other uh, financial costs. We did talk about a lot of challenges related to cancer therapies. I would say that the general trend is that with medications becoming more and more precise, targeted, or niche for very specific diseases, they are also becoming much more expensive because the price is calculated based on the lifetime cost of treatment in some cases. But perhaps to end on a positive note, is there anything else that you would mention in terms of what you are optimistic about when it comes to cancer care. There's these big visions on how we're going to cure cancer, but we started this discussion with statistics that are not very promising in that regard. So how do you see that discrepancy and just the fact that cancer is, for some people, inevitable? So as far as cancer, not the cancer being inevitable, so... Again, the lower somebody gets, the higher the probability that they'll get it. Only because you've got about 37 trillion cells in your body, 100 billion of them divide every day. And there's an average of three mutations per cell division. They have an average of about 300 billion mutations in your body every day. And fortunately, most of them are, don't uh, cause cancer or they're not very important, but some of them are. So that's why the, the older people get to the higher the risk of cancer, of welfare cancer. And anything you do that increases the probability of mutations will increase the probability of getting cancer. So smoking, drinking a lot of alcohol, excess sun exposure, things like that, or anything that makes more cells divide. So being overweight or things like that, or eating too much, or some hormones that can drive that's so that uh, so that the that's why cancer is so common and and why though you get the higher probability. So I point out in the book that if you really want to cut down your risk of getting cancer, the only way to do that is to die young or something else. 
So that's not a very good option. So they, so they just try to moderation and everything. So my wife pointed out to me that, that we all have to enjoy life. So we can't avoid all pleasures that can increase the risk of cancer, but you just use moderation. One glass of wine instead of two. And, uh, things like that. Eating steak only once a month instead of every day. Those types of things are important. Uh, now, as far as whether we'll ever be able to cure cancer once it's there, the short answer is that I think probably, like right now, we can cure metastatic testicular cancer, metastatic corneal carcinoma, some leukemia, some lymphomas, and some other childhood malignancies. So we know that it's possible to, but what we don't know, we do not know why we cannot cure the common cancers of adults, the so-called epithelial cancers like breast cancer, lung cancer, and colon cancer. But if we figure out uh, just one of them, uh, why we can't cure it, what we need to do, that might possibly answer the question for all of them. So there could be uh, one giant leap all of a sudden. And this how progress has always happened. It's not been just this slow, steady progress. It's been that we take a quick leap, then we're on a plateau for a period. Then we take another big leap, and we're on a plateau for a period of time. And so that and when we make advances, often they're from completely unexpected directions. The importance of serendipity the importance of cross-fertilization from, from other areas. So those are very important. Like the, the for example, the new checkpoint ones they've got now, they were discovered as a result of people trying to figure out how to reduce the probability of uh, organ rejection for organ transplants. So that so we always keep have to keep our eyes open for things that anywhere that, that can, can lead to progress. And as far as the, the just the, the cost of it all, my mentor, I believe, to MLJ Pryor-Mike Coombs, one of the pioneers of cancer, he had products lost, and two of them were very important. One was always be prepared for success. And right now we're not prepared for success because the patients are living longer and longer. The, cost, the treatments are costing more and more. And, and we, we're not prepared for that. So how do we tackle that? And again, it's important that we figure out ways to bring down the cost of treatment. And, and but again, that, that, that progress has meant that we're, we can get by with far fewer hospital beds now than what we used to because more and more people are treated as outpatients because of the, drug, the drugs being more effective. But that was one of his tools. Another very important law that he had was the only people who come close to predicting the future are the science fiction writers, and they always underpredicted by the most predicted. And when he told us that back in the late, back in the 1970s, none of us thought we'd no longer need a map because a computer and a car would be talking to satellite. That was science fiction. But if we could imagine it, then it can be done. And that's how the great advances in the future are going to be, as science fiction that suddenly comes true, that people just buy it, figure out a way to do things that we did not know that we could do. And as long as we keep on breathing, then the progress will continue. So we have to make sure that we bring down the cost of drugs so that we can maintain the funding that's required to keep on doing the research that's essential for progress. Thank you, David, for all the insights and the information that you shared today and congratulations on the book. I think it's a very informative description of everything that happens after a cancer diagnosis, a really good guide about different treatments, which are very complex to understand, but you managed to explain them in a very lay language that's easy to understand. For anyone that's interested in learning more about cancer therapies and cancer, it's a great guide. So congratulations. Okay, and again, the name of the book is A Short Primer on Why Cancer Still Sucks. And you can get it to order through Amazon or my website, whycancerstillsucks.com. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health, a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. 
If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast because it really, really helps other listeners interested in digital health find the show as well. Stay tuned.